Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We're available live, yes, beyond the FM dial at RadioNorthland.org and tune in too. You can get, pick up that app for your smartphone, listen to us live and in the moment. If you're not live and in the moment, oh, you missed us for whatever reason, you don't don't fret, don't fret. You can head to our website, radionorthland.org. I mentioned the place where you can stream us. You can also check out our archive of seven years of wrestling memories, man. It's some good, good stuff through the years. Uh, some legends have passed through here. Uh, some up-and-comers uh, who, be, who are on their way to becoming legends have been here as well. I'm Glenn Broggett, uh, welcoming you in for another fine week here on wrestling uh, Memories Then and Now. And, of course, uh, my co-host is back. He's back. He's been on assignment. This man has been quite busy, and it'll become quite evident in the uh, upcoming weeks here with the, uh, I guess, the uh, assemblage of guests he has lined up for us. Uh, he's been a busy man down in that mobile studio doing his thing. It's so, so great to have him from deep in the heart of Texas, the grizzled vet, Mike McCurdy. Mike, my friend, welcome back to Wrestling Memories Then and Now. All right, man. Glad to be back in the co-host chair and, <clears throat> as you said, on assignment and partially, unfortunately, on assignment also, man, I just dealt with a nasty cold. So luckily the listeners got me in my uh, you know prime speaking voice because I didn't have one a couple of days ago. So so it kind of, uh, you know, you're on assignment. You also have to deal with uh, this uh, this thing that took your voice down a little bit, but you're back. You seem refreshed and you seem ready to uh, talk some some wrestling memories then and now. But, you know, Mike, when you were, you were away and on assignment last week, uh, I had a chance to talk with Jerry Jarrett and Adam Parsons uh, about the uh, Roku channel, the Jarrett Parsons Wrestling Channel. Well, but- you know. <laughs> I knew you were going to throw that in, but uh, some good things. Uh, good things are afoot, though, uh, with, with Jerry. Uh, so we wish them all the best. And another uh, episode, you, you were unfortunately out on assignment and weren't able to be a part of. Um, you know, before we get to our guest today, was an episode that George Shire, another of one of our uh, co-hosts here on Wrestling Memories, uh, another contributor, uh, George Shire and I did uh, that covered the life and career of the destroyer Dick Byer. Now, before we get going with our guest today, and of course we'll give him a great little introduction and we'll get uh, talking, but before we get to um, our guest, I kind of want to just give you the floor here because you didn't have a chance to uh, share some memories uh, that you had a chance to uh, uh, have had with with Dick Byer, uh, the destroyer out at Cauliflower Alley. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the floor here, uh, a little time this uh, first part of the episode uh, before we get to our guest to talk about uh, some of your memories and just your your take on on the life uh, of Dick Byer. Well, you know, Glenn, before before I I tell a little destroyer story, and I have a few from the CAC, um, I want to throw this out there. Today, you know, they were recording this, March 28th, but Today, unfortunately, sad moment for me. Ten years ago today was when my father passed away. But I know that tonight he's listening to this show because if I'm doing wrestling memories, my father would have found a way to listen to it. Nice. Even as technologically disadvantaged as he was, he would listen if he was around, if he was here. So I just kind of throw that out there, you know, a little dedication to dad. You know, I'm sure there's airwaves up there where he's so he can pick us up. But and I know he's going to enjoy this this week's guest because who we're going to be talking about is was one of his favorites. So, but you know, I did get a chance to listen to George Shire talk about the destroyer. And I got to say, George can talk. I'm going to say this right now. I think I heard you maybe two or three minutes, but George <laughs> delivered the, the epic episode of all tributes to the destroyer. And I thought it was absolutely amazing. So I enjoyed listening to it. And I'm looking forward to hearing Jerry Jarrett. I've interviewed him before. And well, you know, He's always a good guest to have, and you know there's big things coming with the uh, Jarrett Parsons Roku Wrestling Channel. 
Um, I believe he's going into indie wrestling. He's going to have indie wrestling promotions on that channel. I just saw that on Facebook. And you, I guess, said that there was a little talk about there might be a podcast channel coming up, and maybe there might be another way for people to listen to wrestling memories, I'm just saying. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, you know, don't want to let the cat too cat far out of the bag, but uh, there could be things afoot. But, you know, as far as the tributes go, I had a chance to meet the Destroyer for the first time 2006 at uh, Cauliflower Alley Club. It was my first year there in Las Vegas at the uh, Plaza Hotel. That's where we were at that year. And I, growing up, did not get a chance to watch the Destroyer because, you know, obviously, you know, I'm, I mean, well, I was a young pup to that man. But, you know, I didn't get a chance to see Destroyer. I saw WWF in the 80s. I was, I was a Hulkamania child, basically. But, uh, you know, I saw him in the magazines as I started going into historical work and doing more of that. And when the internet became the boom, I learned more about the destroyer. So I knew who he was. I'd seen photos by that time I had seen, you know, footage of him and he, he comes across destroyer was definitely what he was. He was a heel. He was the bad guy. That's what he did. And on the magazine covers, you were scared of the destroyer. He, he, he looked like a frightening, uh, you know, person, but I got a chance to meet him and I got to say, and I, I don't want to break character, but I think I can get away with it now, is that Dick Byer, the Destroyer, is one of the nicest men you could ever meet. I knew him for like five minutes, but he talked to me like I'd been a friend of his for years. And every year, I always looked forward to him. You always saw him call for our wake up, sitting in the nostalgia room. He'd have his photos out. Later on, he had his book, Mass Decisions, a great book, by the way. If anybody wants to find out more about the career of the Destroyer, Go find the book, Mass Decisions. Amazing book. Definitely worth the investment. But he was always there. Always had the mask on. Would always tell you the story about the, the wool bodysuit that snapped in the crotch. And he, and he told other stories. He told so many. He told ribs that I can't share on air because they're just they're not appropriate for Sundays at noon right after church gets out. Well, of course not. But, yeah. but the story, he was, he was a great guy. Such a friendly man. The second year I was there, and this is this is a story I want to share because I always thought this is kind of funny. Second year I'm there, they move over to the Riviera Hotel and Casino. And Riviera has a few theaters there. That's where there's a Lacage theater where they have the you know, the 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 drag queens or whatever show where they dress like Joan Rivers and Marilyn Monroe and all that. They had a comedy club. But they also have and this is the longest running show in Vegas longest running topless review in Vegas and it's um, I went to that because I wanted to go see the, the topless review. And for, unfortunately I'm drawing a blank as the name of the group right now, but I went to go see this show and I bought my tickets. Destroyer sees me later on that day. And I was talking to a friend of mine and said, Oh yeah, I got tickets to go see uh, the show. And they're like, Oh really? And Destroyer goes, Oh, you're going to the comedy show. Are you going to see the girls, the guys in the dresses? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to the comedy show, and no, I'm not going to go see the, the the guys in the dresses. I'm I'm going to see the the, the topless review. And he kind of gets quiet and he looks around. His wife sitting next to him. He goes, well, you know, when when the wife is away, maybe uh, you and I can get me one of those tickets. Um, well, if you'd like to go to the show, sir, and all that. He goes, well, it's been a while since I've seen a young pair, but I think the old heart can handle it. And his wife just looked at him and just like, Geez. and he, and he thought that was just funny. You know, oh, if the, the young pair, you know, I'm sure the old heart can handle it. But yeah, Destroyer wanted to go to the, the, the topless review with me at the Riviera Hotel and Casino. 
<laughs> that's that's gold, man. Now that's that, that that's a great memory, uh, Mike. And uh, yes, uh, you know we uh, you know kind of our guest uh, today is going to talk about somebody who, not unlike uh, the destroyer Dick Buyer, as far as like uh, having success in Japan. I think these guys, uh, you know, could, could share some similar war stories. But not only was this man, uh, you know, popular in Japan, he was popular around the world. This guy was just such a when he, you know such a wonder, you know, an eighth wonder perhaps but mike i'm gonna let you introduce uh, our guest today and uh, we can get things started here uh, on wrestling memories then and now well you know last year right around this time it was wrestlemania season right after wrestlemania there was a documentary that came out in hbo films it was a documentary on andre the giant and i'm sure a lot of our listeners have had a chance to view that film i just watched it the other day myself to prep myself for this interview great documentary well here in just a few weeks it's going to be released on blu-ray dvd digital so people can now own a copy of it you don't have to just go to hbo but it's also coming out the andre the giant documentary it's going to have the movie it's going to have matches it's going to have highlights interviews it's going to be the perfect gift for the andre fan it's going to be the perfect gift for me i'm probably going to buy it for myself but our guest today knows probably just as much about that andre film and more because he has been a 40-year historian of the career and the life of Andre the Giant. I wanted to have him on as a guest going into WrestleMania season, Andre the Giant Battle Royal, the Andre the Giant Blu-ray DVD coming up. I want to talk to this man, learn more about him, and find out some stories, what he's learned, and the people he's talked to about the legendary Andre the Giant. Because Andre the Giant is someone that everybody knew. Even if you don't watch wrestling, you know who Andre the Giant is. And our guest today is none other than Mr. Chris Owens. Chris, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Mike, and thank you, Glenn. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I look forward to uh, talking about all things about Andre. Now, I'm going to start off. Um, I talked with you a little bit earlier uh, this week to kind of get a little bit of your background and all that. You said you started watching wrestling around 1981, and you, like all of us, you, you read the magazines, you watched TV shows and all that, but then you got interested in it. But what about the wrestling? What about it hooked you, and then you were like, I want to know more about this, and then specifically – what got you interested in learning about the life and the career of Andre the Giant? Sure. Well, I guess just like with, you know, like a lot of children at the time, in 1981, I was eight years old, and I was fortunate to have uh, two promotions that I was able to watch on TV. One was a local one called Central States Wrestling out of Kansas City, and the other one, since we had cable, was uh, WTBS. And at a very young age, I was hooked to the characters. You know, I was learning a little bit about them by reading the wrestling magazines, and you know, I loved the the colorful, the colorful uh, characters, uh, the the personalities, the promos. And since I was always a, a very active athletic kid, I loved the athleticism inside the ring. It was something I'd never seen before. And so week by week, I would learn about different wrestlers, and, and some I would see on my television, others I would just see in the magazines. And along comes this character in the magazine by the name of Andre the Giant. I'd not seen him on TV at that point, but all I knew was he looked different than anybody else I'd ever seen before. The stories I read about him were just unbelievable. And I remember asking my dad, I said, you know, have you ever heard of this? this man before, and of course he had, he'd seen him throughout the 70s, and he'd seen him, you know, roughly before, and uh, uh, he's, he'd been telling me little stories about, about Andre, but I just knew there had to be more behind the man than just what was presented in the wrestling magazines, and I guess that's kind of what drew me 
uh, just like any other fan to, you know, whatever the particular wrestler they would like to follow. They drew me into wanting to learn more about Andre the man behind the character and how he got to be, uh, you know, from a, you know, a rural farm kid in France to, I would say, arguably the most recognizable athlete in the 1970s in the world right alongside Muhammad Ali. Fascinating story. Like I said, everybody in her, no, you know who Andre the Giant is, even if you haven't watched wrestling. Through, you know, The Princess Bride, people know who he is. They're actually performed, putting together a musical version of The Princess Bride. And, of course, obviously that's going to include Fezzik, but I don't think anybody can be Fezzik other than Andre. Such an iconic person in and out of the ring. But when you first started, you know, learning about, how did you first start your research you know, where did you go? Who did you talk to? And just kind of what was the process in beginning your, well, basically almost lifelong interest in the research on Andre the Giant? Well, I guess at first I would obviously just reference the wrestling magazines, uh, especially throughout the 1980s. Um, I got into a little bit of corresponding with individuals on the back of magazines that would have old magazines that would be from Japan. I would start to learn a little bit about his career in Japan. Um, and then as the tape trading circles became more popular in the late 80s and early 90s, again, made correspondence with folks all over the, the country and would start exchanging tapes of matches, um, not only of him in the United States, but also in Japan, Australia, uh, Germany, and being able to kind of piece all of this together and kind of formulate my own timeline as far as, um, you know, well, well, if he's not wrestling here in Des Moines, Iowa, maybe he's in Dallas this week or down in Florida. And again, without the advent of the Internet back then, you didn't really know where your favorite wrestler was at at all the times. And uh, so I guess, you know, the more I learned, the more I became interested in knowing that there was a lot more of his career than just what was presented in the magazines or you could see on tapes. And so, um, you know, from there, kind of morphed into getting to know other fans and kind of sharing information that way. And as I got older, uh, being able to interact with some of the wrestlers at the conventions and asking about, you know, their stories and, and seeing if it kind of ties in with, you know, the other stories that you hear from the guys. Because with Andre, one of the fun things is, you know, there's a lot of fiction mixed in with fact. And uh, one of the things I've tried always holding true is is more the factual based um, story that we know of him. When you first started this, you know you're learning more about the. What were some of the first things that you learned that <clears throat> maybe most people didn't know? Because like you said, all we saw was what we saw in the magazines, and the magazines obviously presented Andre as this unbeatable, you know, monster of a man. They didn't show any, you know, because obviously Andre did lose a few times. We know this. And they never covered that, though, because they didn't want that image of Andre, you know, getting out. Sure. Well, I think one of the things that I learned early on is we all grew up believing he was just a baby face. But we didn't realize at the same time he would be going to Japan twice a year and playing a huge heel. And he, he, he did a, you know, a great job at that. He was a natural-born heel in front of the Japanese fans, even though you know, they loved and adored him. Uh, but you know, behind that, of course, they were booing him against their local heroes. So that was one of the first things that I was kind of surprised at, that he wasn't always a fan favorite. 
Um, and, and you're right, Mike, because he was not undefeated. Um, you know, those early years in France and England, he did lose some bouts. Um, and he was, you know, one of the other myths you hear is he wasn't body slammed until, you know, John Doe did it in 1978. Well, he was body slammed throughout his career. That was not an unusual thing until some of the U.S. promoters made it a special thing for him. And so, again, when I started kind of piecing some of those things together, I said, well, maybe there's a little bit more to this guy than just what the promoters are telling you or what the, what the, what the uh, Met Wrestling Magazine writers are, are telling you each month as well. Now, one thing I've, I've learned over time is, uh, as a historian, and I do a lot of world-class work, and Andre actually came through the world-class territory during time, as most everybody did. But when you start to talk to people, and you're not inside that circle. You're not inside their in their world. You know, you're looked at as an outsider. Sometimes they don't want to talk to you, and if they do, they're very guarded, and they'll tell you the stories that we all know. They won't break down and tell you, you know, the the more personal stories, the stuff that was behind the scenes. Is that something you encountered when you first started? Because, like I said, you're an outsider. You want to know more about Andre. And it's a very good, this is a very guarded industry. Even to this day, some people are still very abrasive when it comes to an outsider coming in. Very true. I think there's a, there's definitely a curve of trust that has to be kind of earned on both parts. And I have encountered that, you know, oftentimes when I've met um, some of the guys that have been in the business, you're exactly right. They tell you the same story, whether they're true or not. You just kind of sit there and you're, you know, you're kind of shaking your head. But one of the things that I found is that, you know, when we start engaging in a conversation, if I start sharing some information or some research that they may not be aware of, they'll kind of look at you and go, oh, you do kind of know what you're talking about. And, you know, slowly, little by little, some more stories will come out and maybe a little bit more truth behind some of their stories come out. But you're exactly right. There is kind of a relationship you gotta you got to build over time. Um, you know, it, it was and a little bit still of this that has been a very guarded business. Um, and letting those outsiders in, kind of, you know, pulling that curtain back is not an easy thing for some of the guys to do still, even to this day. But I think if they, if they you know, sense there is trust, um, um, you know, it's coming from a good spot, they're definitely willing to share some stories and insight. And, that, and to the best of their memory, some of the stories they had with, with Andre. I could definitely agree with you as far as the uh, the earning that that level of trust. When I first started, you know, world class and all that, I've I've loved it since I was, yeah, I'd say probably a teenager, probably like mid eighties when I found it at ESPN. But when I first started wanting to write about it and learn more about it, and I decided, you know, I'm going to sit down, and put together a book of this. I lived in California, and I got called. You know, well, I'll call this man. So I called Black Bart. I got a hold of Black Bart. I said, I'd like, talk to you about this. First words out of that man's mouth is, what the hell is a kid from California doing writing anything about Texas? And he was very, very guarded about it. But and you, you earn that level of trust. You start to, And now I can see him and call him and talk to him, and he realizes what I'm doing. And I think the role of the historian is probably more accepted now than it was then, maybe because they're realizing now that we're telling their stories, we're sharing those stories that eventually – people won't be around to share because, you know, age comes on, they pass on. We're keeping those stories alive. So I think that kind of helps, and they've given us more of an opportunity to become part of the part of that circle, even though, you know, we're still the outsider. We weren't in the ring. We weren't in the dressing room to these guys. 
and especially with you, you know, I'm, I'm talking about world-class all the time, which is an iconic area. You're talking about a man who you said was recognized in the seventies. Andre the giant is probably one of the most recognized in my opinion, athletes ever is everybody. Even now you still know who Andre the giant is. Absolutely. Um, even non-wrestling fans, um, you know, if I get to talking about, you know, some of the interests and hobbies, they probably couldn't name you more than three wrestlers that are wrestling active, but they definitely know who Andre the Giant was, and they can tell you a little bit about the Princess Bride. They can tell you a little bit about WrestleMania three, or maybe some um, TV shows they saw him. They definitely remember him. See, for me, my first uh, my first exposure with Andre was as a little kid. I loved the Six Million Dollar Man. I thought that show was great. My friends and I would pretend we were the Six Million Dollar Man. And there's obviously the episode with. You know, Andre played Bigfoot, and he fought the $6 million man. And I was absolutely amazed by this because that was not – those weren't lifts in those boots. That was literally Andre the Giant inside that costume. And as a kid, I was just amazed by the sheer size of him. I'd never really seen him wrestle that much because still a little bit. He was on the $6 million man, and that's where I first got my exposure to Andre. You know, later on, of course, Hulkamania got big, and I watched WWF, and I learned more about it. But – for some people, you know, the Bigfoot episode of the Six Million Dollar Man might be where they first got their exposure of Andre, and they didn't really people don't realize he was an actor. He did films and TV series like that, other than just more than just wrestling. He kind of did these because he was such, you know, uh, a featured person. People knew who he was. It was basically kind of like you know, this was like wow, this is the cream of the crop right here. If you can get Andre the Giant to be a spot on your talk show or in an episode of your TV series. You're exactly right. Um, you know, if we could step back just a couple of years in 1974, I think it was in August of 74, was really one of the first times he kind of crossed over to mainstream media when he was a guest on Tonight Show. He was in Los Angeles for a couple of days, and they uh, had coordinated it, uh, not only having him wrestle early lad at the Olympics, but then uh, the, the night before to have him on Tonight Show. And it was the first time that I would guess non-wrestling fans may have seen him. If, uh, if they had never, they'd be able to see him in local newspaper ads, but to actually see him on TV next to Joey Bishop, who was the guest host that night, um, it, was, it was a huge um, event for Andre at the time. Um, at the same time, I'm sure fans have seen photos of, of Andre at Disneyland posing with Goofy and Mickey Mouse. Those were taken the exact same day that he filmed that Tonight Show by a uh, famous photographer, Theo Eric. And so that, that time period really helped launch him into the mainstream media. Then if you fast forward, uh, in February of 76 is when the uh, Secret of Bigfoot episodes aired. And uh, on a side note, that was kind of a special event for Andre because during that time he joined SAG. And, you know, one of the... Uh, the downfalls of a lot of wrestlers back then was they did not have health insurance. And, of course, they had to go, you know, not being able to treat all these injuries they had. But by Andre joining SAG in 1976, he was able to get his health insurance. And not a lot of folks knew that. But that came into play later on as his health changed and started to decline, especially in the mid to late 80s. But, yeah, 1976 was a big year for him because not only was he presented on TV on one of the most popular TV shows at the time, but uh, fast forward to that summer when he was at that War of the Worlds um, show in Shea Stadium against Chuck Webner. 
and the Associated Press picked that up, and all of a sudden you started seeing photographs of this giant wrestler next to uh, Chuck Webner, the boxer, but they also put pictures of him next to Muhammad Ali, where they held a press conference in New York. And for the first time, they started seeing these two most famous athletes side by side, and just the size difference between Ali, who was considered a big heavyweight at the time, next to a guy who was over 200 pounds more than him, and these visual uh, uh, photographs of, of the giant's fist almost covering Muhammad Ali's face. And I think there's another one where they're comparing hand size. So again, that mid-70s was a pivotal point for his career. Because if you go back and look at the wrestling magazines in 1975, 76, 77, almost six out of the 12 covers that they would present each month had a photograph of Andre on the cover because they knew he was a, a, a top-selling wrestler at the time. And so, again, his exposure really started to increase during that period. Now, once you started the, your, your research, you started reaching out to people, you started talking to the guys that got to work with Andre, that knew him personally. Who were some of the first people that you reached out to that opened up to you, and just what kind of were some of the stories they were able to share about him? Oh, you're testing my memory now. <laughs> Um, we I like guess, to do that on this show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me see. I'm going to probably get them out of chronological order, but um, Paul Orndorff, uh, Bob Orton Jr., uh, Roddy Piper, uh, some of the guys that, um, and this again would have been well, somewhere in the, in the 90s, I guess, uh, that had worked with Andre in his younger days. Um, you know, some of their stories kind of matched up to others I heard. Others were maybe fabricated a little bit. But uh, one of the things that they all talked about was uh, he was about as loyal as you could be uh, being a friend. And he had a small circle of friends that he really trusted. But once you were in there, he was a great friend to everybody. Very uh, generous, very gracious. Uh, Roddy would tell me the story a couple times of how he took care of him in the WWF. Uh, because he really enjoyed getting to know him when he first came across him in, in California and in, even in Portland days. And uh, Roddy told me the story of the time when they were at Madison Square Garden. It was early 1984, and there was a tag match between himself and David Schultz, Andre, and Jimmy Snuka. And it was Andre's idea, he said that night in the dressing room, told Roddy, because uh, he was trying to get Roddy over at the time with the WWF crowd to really bust him open, make him believe in front of that New York crowd and to the point where he would be carried out of the ring. And Roddy said he never forgot the, the generosity that he helped him that night because the crowd just went riotous after seeing that. And it really did help Roddy over the next several months kind of grow into that character he had in the mid-'80s. Uh, Bob Orton Jr. always spoke very highly of Andre. He was very close to him. Andre was close to his family, um, travel partner. Um, you know, of course, the road stories. They often talk about being on the road with Andre and driving down the road. Uh, you know, Andre would be drinking in the in the back seat, and uh, um, just the stories that they would share of you know the the guys that they both mutually worked with, uh, different promote, promoters that they enjoyed working for. And just, you know, some of the, um, what they hoped for in the wrestling business. Andre, they said, would help a lot of the guys um, along the way with ideas, helping their, their, their character grow. And one of the things that I always um, 
appreciated learning. I heard this from other guys as well, too, especially back in the, the um, oh, mid-70s when promotions were still working the small high school gyms and the small armories, and the local promoter would bring Andre in to fill the house. Uh, the local promoter wasn't able to give too much to Andre. You know, they didn't have first-class arrangements for him. Uh, the money was okay, but nothing compared to the bigger shows. But they would always try to offer Andre his own dressing room. And they said that Andre would refuse that. He wanted to be just one of the boys, dress with the boys, and be treated just the same. And they said that you wouldn't believe how many of the local talent couldn't couldn't get over that. That he wanted to be just like them and not not to be viewed any different than like a be the, the big star coming into their town. He just wanted to be one of them. And I always appreciated hearing that. All right, well, I'm going to pass the mic over to uh, Glenn. I'm sure he's got a few questions he'd like to ask about uh, Andre as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, thanks for letting me uh, get in a few here, uh, Mike. Uh, Chris, I'm gonna, we're talking about uh, Andre here on this edition. And one of the things that, that fascinates me about uh, Andre was, you know, some of the early years and, and seeing some of the footage of Andre, whether it be in Montreal, uh, where he was uh, very unlike the Andre that we would uh, get to know, uh, well, I got to know while watching when I first started, first saw him in the early 1980s with the AWA. Uh, he was a giant. He he was uh, not somebody who would leave his feet very often. It was a special thing when he left his feet. But back in the earlier days, uh, before Andre really developed uh, the the character and the attraction that was Andre, he did a lot of stuff where he was very aerial, very acro- you know, acrobatic to a degree. So uh, kind of like talk about the cultivation of how Andre uh, really started to kind of uh, find himself as a you know not only uh, as a, a wrestler but just to find his way you know. A lot of things and a lot of stories come up to help him, and a lot of people come into the story. But could you tell us a little bit about how Andre became this? Uh, went from this agile wrestler to uh, uh, the uh, giant that we became, you know, grew up and in, 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 you know knew, knew and loved. Sure. Well, again, when we talk about like Grand Prix wrestling in Canada, he landed there around June of '71. And around that time, Andre was weighing probably a legit 320, 330 pounds, somewhere around there. So obviously much lighter on his feet than what most fans saw him, let's say, 10 years later. Uh, And you're right. He did wrestle a much quicker pace, kind of a British pace, because he had just come off the British circuit. Um, And he also had been working in Japan the year before. Um, And again, if we take a step back or two, Prior to going to Canada, he was working in Japan, and oftentimes uh, during that period, he was working with guys like Carl Gotch and Billy Robinson, and they were really working a, a, a uh, catch wrestling style. And so when he did come into to, um, Montreal and uh, Toronto and Verdun and all the other uh, uh, cities up there, you, you did see a fast-moving giant. Um, they weren't really portraying him as... Uh, you know, the Andre that we would know in the 1980s, but he was a giant wrestler. And they would book him with guys oh, like Ivan Koloff and Blackjack Mulligan and um, some, of the, some of the guys that he would run into a little bit later. And then eventually most fans are familiar with his feuds with Killer Kowalski and Don Leo Jonathan, two guys that were close to his size, but it's still that visual appearance of a, of a, of a bigger giant and Typically how they would um, promote him back then was a very friendly, always smiling giant uh, outside the ring. And in the, inside the ring, he would maintain his composure 
until the bad guy would start doing illegal things, and then you would see see the the ire of him start to increase and his anger. And um, the thing was, you couldn't control the giant's anger, and oftentimes he would end up losing by disqualification because the referee couldn't get control of him. Uh, maybe his quarterman Edward Capartier could get a hold of him as either, and so they were slowly trying to. Um, uh, craft Andre into this this wrestler that you know eventually would be under control and kind of mature more into a to a wrestler. But yeah, he he did he did lift uh, quite often. He was known to do drop kicks, uh, come off the top rope with a kind of a splash onto his opponents. And so yeah, a much different style back then. You know, and, and we're talking about how Andre, you know, became Andre the Giant and, you know, was this big attraction who, who worked territories all across the United States uh, and, and around the, the world. Uh, a lot of that really had to do, uh, I guess, uh, as far as getting the bookings, developing the Giant uh, to what he became. A lot of that, you know, you could, could give credit and, uh, you know, to helping develop this uh, Andre at this point was uh, Vince McMahon Sr., uh, you know, Vincent J. McMahon. Can you talk about just how important Vince was uh, and the McMahon family and the relationship with Andre and developing him and, and getting him the bookings and, and really, uh, you know, before uh, the big expansion of the 80s, making him this, this attraction that got to go to all of these great territories? He had a very close relationship with Vince Sr. In fact, um, one of the things I've heard from a lot of the guys, they always refer to it as Vince being like a father figure to Andre very close, kept very good care of him. Um, it was it was key because, you know, going back to those Grand Prix days, uh, a lot of times they could say they kind of um, burnt out the character because, you know, if you're doing Montreal three to four shows a month and he's on every single show, uh, fans would get used to seeing him. Same with going to Verdun or Quebec City, uh, Ottawa. They're doing the shows three to four times a month, seeing the same guy. And, uh, you know, the fans would, grow tired of seeing the same type of matches. And, you know, word kind of got down or got down to New York a little bit about that. And how do we better promote this wrestler? Well, first of all, we probably need to change his name. Uh, American fans are not going to catch on to a guy by the name of Jean Ferre. They don't know what that means. So it, to, my, to my knowledge, I think sometime around October of 72, uh, maybe the summer of... Um, around that time, you started seeing billings for, it would say, Andre, comma, the giant Frenchman, or it would say Andre, in parentheses, the giant Rosanoff. And then slowly it morphed into Andre the Giant. And so when Vince Sr. got a hold of him, they started uh, getting together with all the promoters, and you know, they would take a booking fee, and you could have him here for you know, a couple weeks, and his routine was pretty well set. Uh, throughout the throughout the year, for example, the first three months of the year, Andre would typically go to Texas, California, Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas. In April, Vince might have him back up in his New York territory. Uh, like I said earlier, he would do a couple tours of Japan each year, typically in May and maybe November, December. And then going through the summer months in the United States, you would see him again in Texas, Carolinas, Detroit, back to New York. Um, and then he finished out the year, again, going back down to Texas, uh, Alabama, some of the Midwestern states. And then if he was going to go abroad, oftentimes he would hit Australia in December or he would go over into New Zealand or, or Germany. 
But by doing this, the fans, you know, would want to come out and see him if they knew he's only going to be in their area once, maybe twice a year. And they would book him oftentimes with uh, a top heel. And they could book it so that both men would come out looking good. You know, he might not get a clean win over the, over the top guy, but he would definitely make um, an impact. And um, the promoter would often use them, or excuse me, use Andre as much as he could, oftentimes booking him twice a night in a battle royal and maybe in a singles match. Mm-hmm. Just to give you an idea of, of um, how crazy his travels were, uh, one of the things I've kept over the years is a uh, record book of Andre. And right now I currently have uh, maybe a little over 4,000 results, so I have a good snapshot of where he's, you know, where he was at any particular month of the year. Back in the 70s, he typically was doing about 22 to 25 matches per month. And again, with very little rest, month to month. And um, again, the, the thousands of miles he was logging each year was just incredible. And I've often wondered if they would have given him a little time off here and there, if that would not help prolong his, his career a little bit. Another thing that Andre was, uh, you know, and, you know, and I started watching wrestling in the eighties and, uh, you know, I grew up, uh, AWA country. And, uh, of course I, I, I was right there at the beginning of, uh, when Vincent Kennedy McMahon uh, took over, uh, and, and began his expansion. But one of the things that, uh, kind of, uh, I guess uh, mesh. I guess went over uh, into uh, both through both McMahon's was uh, a gimmick that really stuck with Andre for a while. Although it was often disputed, of course, by uh, other sources. But in the pre-internet days, a lot of the stuff could could fly. Uh, of course, when you think of Andre the Giant, a lot of people talk about that the undefeated streak. Could you talk about uh, some of the seeds uh, that were planted with the undefeated streak and where they went with it through the years? I think very early on in the wrestling magazines, they would always talk about the unbeatable, undefeated giant. And it was much easier to market somebody who's never been defeated against their local champion because there was always that, um, you know, that, that possibility that this giant may come in and beat our champion because this guy's never been beat before. Um, was he defeated? Yes, he was defeated uh, by, by uh, a clean pinfall probably a handful of times, um, you know, again, like you said, pre-internet days, pre-cell phone days, folks didn't know about this. And so, you know, some of the names that have always been tossed around as far as guys who got pinfalls over him, uh, you know, Ronnie Garvin, Tank uh, did, uh, Antonio Noki, in fact, submitted him in the middle of the ring less than a year before the WrestleMania three match. And there's always been stories behind that, for example. Um, you know, why did Andre let Anoki submit him in the middle of the ring? Some said it was a, um, a thank you for all the years of, of his partnership with New Japan. Some people have said maybe he did that to get back at Vince, or excuse me, Vince Jr. You know, we may never know. But yeah, he did get beat. Um, Bill After tells a, story, a good story of one time he ran a... a um, an, uh, a cover page uh, article about tonight the midget defeated the giant. And it was a story of Jerry Lawler beating Andre by count out. But then Sr. saw that and just blew a gasket. You know, he, he called up Bill and I can't believe you'd run a story like this. And he said for the longest time that strained the relationship. Because again, it in the promoter's eyes, if a wrestling fan saw that, did that just you know, null and void the whole undefeated streak. Mm-hmm. 
And that was back, I believe, in 1977. I want to get a little bit more into it. We're now talking about when Vince McMahon Jr. took over and the expansion of the WWF started. This is kind of when, you know, we all know Hulkamania, Hogan won the title, Andre's there in the locker room pouring the champagne or whatever it was over him. But also, you know, this is when you had the Hulk Hogan rock and wrestling cartoon. Andre the Giant was a character in that. There were Andre the Giant toys. The Princess Bride movie came out in the 80s. Andre became more, at this point in time, started to become more of a, we'll say, a pop culture uh, phenomenon as well as in the ring. Obviously, in the 80s, his his better years were getting behind him. By WrestleMania three, he'd had back surgery and everything, but he was becoming more popular, in, like I said, in the pop culture scene, the cartoons, the movies. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about that and maybe some people you might have spoken to in your research that knew him on that level, maybe worked with him on the movie or, you know, wrote, did, you know, worked on the cartoons and like that because it became more, he became more of a pop culture uh, icon at that time. He did. Um, one individual, for example, we talk about Princess Bride. I had the uh, honor of talking with Dory Funk Jr. many years ago. And we sat and talked for a while about Andre. And uh, one of the memories he often would talk about was when they were on tour in Japan in the early 90s. He said Andre still was carrying around that videotape of the Princess Bride. And on the um, All Japan bus rides, he would pop the tape in in the hotel. He wanted to make sure that all the guys on that tour watched that movie. And he said Andre never tired of watching that. And he would... He would sit there and someone, you know, watch this part, watch this part. He was really keen on, on the whole movie. He was very proud of that uh, movie. And I think, you know, in fact, that uh, opened up the possibility of him doing some more roles because around the same time, fans saw him in the Honeycomb commercial. Um, and there were some more scripts that were coming his way. But you're right, during that rock and wrestling connection, um, again, the crossover to maybe a younger demographic with the cartoons and the, and the figures that were coming out. Andre was right there. His image was everywhere. And um, so 19, 1987 was a big year for him, uh, even though his wrestling career was starting to slow down, pop culture took over. And maybe a little bit of the legend of Andre started to grow during that period as well, too, because, again, a lot of non-wrestling fans saw him for the first time during that movie. And, you know, again, carrying larger than life on the screen next to these Hollywood actors, they started hearing stories, or maybe they started watching wrestling and saw him on wrestling and started hearing all these stories. So that it, it was a, a big time for him. But it was also a tough time for him because he was going through a second back surgery that year, I think, in July in London, and it was really limiting his, his mobility. Now, talking about the back surgery, I've heard the stories and. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had uh, Johnny Fairplay on the show, and he made the comment that a lot of times the guys will tell these stories to the point where, to them, the story's true. They've told the falsehood so many times that the story's become true. But we've heard the story of Andre and during the back surgery thing, and the surgeons didn't know like how much anesthesia to give him because they were working on such a big man. And supposedly, I... I can't remember who it was, but when they said, how much do we give him? And they said enough to make sure he doesn't wake up because you're going to have an angry giant on your hands. But, you know, how much of that was true? Because like I said, Andre is going through a lot of back surgery and all that. And that's just one of those stories 
that we've heard so many times is the surgery stories and the doctors worried about working on such a large man. Right. It, 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 and you're exactly right. That's where that kind of fine line starts to get blurry. You know, I, I can tell you, I've been in the medical field for about 15 years, and there's really, there should never be any guesswork when it comes to anesthesia. <laughs> so oftentimes it, it can usually go by the body weight of the individual as far as a, a good gauge of how much to give. So when you when you hear, you know, Vince or the others say, well, you got to equate it to how many bottles of wine or, or um, you know, beer that you know, it takes, that may be a little bit, uh, you know, far-fetched. But, yeah, when it comes to the stories like that, those, like you said, get told so often that sometimes you forget what the story was really about. But I, I would I would wager the bet that when they were doing this back surgery, there, there wasn't much guesswork. They kind of knew what they were doing. Now, towards the end of it, you know, he came back from the back surgery. Uh, obviously, Wrestle, WrestleMania three, I think, was probably the the high point for him of that the Hulkamania era, because you know Hogan, Andre, everybody. I watched it. I you know this is before you had like pay per view, like was all in your home. You had to really invest in it. You somebody had to have everyone saw it on closed circuit TV. But I was one of the the guys who watched WrestleMania three because Hogan versus Andre was so huge. And like you said, Andre was at this point in time undefeated. We were supposed to believe that Andre was undefeated. He was going after Hogan, who was his friend. This is a shot at the title. And of course, we all remember Hogan body slammed. We all know the the whole story of it. But let's talk a little bit about WrestleMania three because, as I said, this is kind of like the high point of the Hulkamania era for Andre. And we all know the undefeated streak, and we've all heard the stories going into WrestleMania. But what are some of the things you learned uh, during your research more about WrestleMania three leading up to it, and just you know the iconic part of that main event? Okay, uh, some of the things that I've learned that I can substantiate is that one one of the stories you hear that Vince say is that Andre Memory was done with wrestling. And I guess that was true. You know, he came off of The Princess Bride. He finished filming that in December of 86. And by all accounts, he just he was just exhausted, mentally and physically exhausted. Then I want to wrestle. Um, Vince did approach him and uh, put the offer out there. And to most people, they said that was probably Andre's biggest payday for a wrestling show, was WrestleMania three. Um, going into the match... Uh, it also sounds substantiated that, uh, you know, when you hear Hogan say, well, Andre wasn't talking to me. I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, Andre was not around him backstage. He did not engage with him. Now, did he know what the outcome of the match was going to be? And did they agree upon it? I'm sure they did. They were both professionals, and they wanted the show to look good. So I'm sure that was, you know, a little bit far-fetched. But as far as um, Andre not speaking to Hulk much before the match. It sounds like that was substantiated. Andre was in a great deal of pain. Uh, some said that he didn't have much feeling from below his knee down to his ankle. Um, just uh, the, the numbness, the tingling, uh, poor, circul- poor circulation. Uh, he was having to wear a back brace during that match, which is one of the reasons why they changed his outfit when he came back with that black cichlid. So it would cover that black back brace that he wore during that match. Um, and again, the match was, was um, detailed very much around Andre's limitations. Uh, he wasn't leaving his feet except for the end of the match. Um, I was surprised he was able to body slam Andre, or excuse me, Hogan twice with his with his bad back, but he was able to do that. But again, it was a slow-paced match. 
Um, it wasn't a great match, but it was a good match that those two guys put together. They told a great story, and a lot of fans went into that match thinking that Andre was going to win because we had never seen him get beat before. And at the time, like you said, you just didn't think of Hulk losing as well, too. So that was a big-time match. Um, but again, I, uh, one of the other things I heard was that uh, after the match had um, finished and all the the, the uh, revenues had come in, the, the, the closed-circuit revenues, Vince had gone back and gave um, both Andre and Hulk extra money um, for that match. And depending who you hear, who you hear and who you believe is how much they actually got paid for the match, but it was a great payday for, for Andre. Now, Andre continued on after uh, WrestleMania three. Obviously, um, he won the well. We'll say he won the world title. The twin referees, you know, for giving it to DiBiase the WrestleMania four uh, tournament, which and that match did not even come close to what WrestleMania three was. And all that, but they continue to use Andre in the ring. Now, was that more of like just as an attraction? Because you're saying that the stories that you've been told is that he was done, that he was ready to leave wrestling. He'd done the movie, was ready to move on from wrestling. But he continued on for you know a couple more years after that. You know, was that strictly like as an attraction basis, as because of his relationship with Vince's dad that he felt like loyalty to Vince because he kept going. You know, tag team with Haku. Uh, appeared with the Bushwhackers for a little bit when he had the, and by that point in time, he had the crutches he had to use. But they kept using him. And I've kind of wondered yeah. why, if he's ready to end wrestling, why did he continue to do it? Well, I think, again, from what I understand, he just loved the business, loved being around the guys. Um, he did not like being alone. He didn't want to be off the road because uh, what was he to do? I know his life, essentially for 20 plus years, was being around the boys and being one of them and traveling. Um, you know, some may argue that it, it helped take his mind off of other things that were going on in his life, you know, with his health. You know, you know, obviously he knew his body had changed. His body was aging. Um, he could probably see that and feel that on a, on a monthly basis, especially from all 1988 to, to 1992. You could just visually see him age. He was still keeping up a fairly active career in 1988-89. He was still averaging 15 to 20 matches a month. And, again, very little time off the road. But, like you said, his matches uh, were becoming more of an attraction. It was less athletic. His style in the ring you know, was limited to maybe about a five-move set, whether it was against Jim Duggan, Jake Roberts, Randy Savage, Ultimate Warrior. But to his credit, you go back and you watch those matches, the fans are still engaged with Andre. They believed in him. They loved watching him. Uh, you know, I don't remember, don't ever recall a match where they booed him out of the ring because he wasn't mobile. He was just this legendary figure that uh, could still get in the ring and tell a story, even though it may not have been the same story he could have told 10 years ago in the ring. But for a lot of these guys, like Jim Duggan, still to this day speak very highly of what he did for him in his WWF career there in the late 80s, um, helping him headline Madison Square Garden three times. Um, you know, what other wrestler could have done that with at that time? You know, you'd have to kind of look, look down the roster. Same thing for Jake Roberts. Um, really putting together decent matches with Randy Savage when Randy had the belt and being able to do about a three-month um, stint with Savage on the road. So it's still told that 
the fans wanted to see Andre. He was still selling tickets and was, you know, still able to get the job done in the ring. But you're right. It's just his, um, his career was slowly starting to wind down, and he did start teaming with Haku in late 1989 and going into the, to the 90s. And his style changed, and uh, they morphed him in, like you said, to, to be kind of a tag team champion there at the end. Now, I got a couple, uh, you know, when they found out we were going to be talking about Andre, I had a couple people who had a couple questions they wanted to throw in there, and you, you just brought up one of the names. Um, have you been able to substantiate any of the stories regarding Andre working with the Ultimate Warrior? Because legend goes that Andre did not like working with the Warrior because the Warrior was too fast. And, yes, we've all heard the Bobby Heenan story of how Andre got him to slow down. <laughs> uh, well, I can tell you... <laughs> Over the years, of listening to all these stories, the city and the match where Andre supposedly hits the warrior in the face changes every time. You know, was he stiff in the ring with him? Probably was. Did he actually, you know, punch him in the face? I don't know. The story changes every time. Um, what I do understand is that, you know, they would have two sets of matches. One match would go, uh, you know, eight to ten minutes. The other match would be 30-second squash. And it was typical, uh, typically depending on Andre's health that night, how his back was. If he couldn't get in the ring and it was painful, they would have that short match. If he felt a little better, then they would probably have a little bit longer match. Uh, as far as did he respect the warrior, it doesn't sound like it. And, and it doesn't sound like Andre was alone. One of the things Andre always respected is that the boys respected the business and um, you know, got along with the others. A lot of reports show that Warrior was kind of a loner in the dressing room. He didn't want to associate with some of the guys. And Andre and others took that as being, you know, kind of standoffish. And you don't want to be a part of us. That's fine. You're not going to be treated the same. Now, another uh, another question I got is, you know, have you, have you heard stories of, was there anyone that Andre wanted to work with but never got the chance to, or someone that wanted to work with Andre but, you know, never got the chance to, something that didn't have... And did he, was there any people he regretted never having a chance to work with? Ooh, good question. Um, no, not that I've heard of. Um, it would have been interesting, though, back in the early 70s. Um, there was a lot of talk and maybe a lot of money to be made if they would have had him and Giant Bob work together in a match. Um, obviously, Giant Baba was the giant for Japan. And uh, Andre, always when he would go to Japan, would work for New Japan, the rival promotion. Those two never really hooked up until the late 70s in a battle royal and never did a singles match in their career. So that would have been maybe one match that, you know, I think he could have made a lot of money on, especially in the, in the early 70s. That just didn't happen. Now, throughout your research, you know, we'll go back, we'll talk about, you know, your research a little bit here. Um, has the work you've been done, you know, is there anything you've done that's been recognized as, like, the official historical work? And I, cause, I mean, I know you're on the Facebook page, and that's where I got in contact with you. You're on Andre Giant fan page, which is now under your name. And just the stuff you've got, is a lot of people say they've never seen it before. But is there anything that you've been recognized for as far as your historical research with Andre? Well, I guess most recently would be with that HBO documentary. Um, I was reached out by a couple of producers of that um, before they got started on the project, which I felt really honored with, and they... Um, uh, had me on as the associate, one of the associate producers for the documentary. So I was able to work with them throughout the whole process, uh, doing some fact-checking, um, 
uh, helping him get in contact with some of the, the people you saw on that film, uh, and as well as kind of timeline, you know, getting the photographs and just looking over the first couple drafts of that film before they released it to see kind of, you know, how did it um, piece together? Did it tell a good story? You know, obviously I would love to have had another half hour, 45 minutes to that documentary because we just skimmed the surface, especially of the early part of his career. But I was really happy that, that I was able to be a part of that film. That was something I was, I was proud of. Now we mentioned in your intro that that movie is actually being released, I believe, through WWE um, on DVD, Blu-ray, digital, and all that. Is there going to be, do you know if there's going to be like additional footage to it, or is it still just the documentary that we all saw on HBO? Because that was an amazing film, but you, there's got to be some footage that maybe got, you know, that cut for time constraints. Well, I'm sure, yeah, there was quite a bit of footage. Um, not on this release. Um, like you said at the, at the top of the show, it's going to be the documentary in about five or six matches that the WWE is going to put on there as well, too. Um, not to say there may be a, you know, a, um, a piece that accompanies it on the, on the WWE network. Sometimes they'll put in um, some specials on, on some of the guys. And I'm sure there's plenty of footage out there that they either shot for that documentary or WWE still has that they could um, kind of run coinciding with that documentary. Now, what did you think of the uh, the final the final cut of the documentary? Because I know a lot of people who watched it who remembered Andre, you know, Hulkamani years as a kid or Solomon Princess Bride, and a lot of people I know of, you know, they cried at the end. I'll admit it, I cried at the end when Hogan and Vince are talking about Andre towards the end. You know, it got emotional. But I'm wondering, you know, what was your take on the final cut of the movie? Overall, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I think again being associated with the WWE. You had to have a little bit of the WWE's version in there, which was fine. Uh, the buildup of, of Hulkamania and Hulk Hogan was put in there. Um, I think that part ran a little long for the film. And um, I'm not completely sold on the fact that, that you know, they used Andre as, as the person who passed the torch to Hulk. You know, that's a great story to tell. Is that completely true? I don't know. Uh, it's probably up for, for discussion. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a very emotionally told story. Um, I was glad that the individuals who got involved were part of that film because they were they were um, key players in in Andre's life and being able to to hear different perspectives of you know Andre back home on the ranch. You know what was he like there as a person when he was away from everybody else, or when Ken would talk about stories of of being on the road with him um, and. Um, and I was glad that Vince was honest about his relationship had, had been strained over the last few years because Andre was not that close to him at the end. He had some resentment. He was angry towards him. Um, and I was glad they, you know, they kept that in. Well, it looks like uh, it's, it's, oh, Mike, it uh, looks like our time has just about run out here. Uh, it's been a very uh, interesting talk this hour, Mike, uh, don't you think? Oh, I agree, man. I was just about to bring you back in because I feel kind of bad. I feel like I've monopolized the uh, <laughs> the interview this time because I was having such a great time talking about Andre. No, no, no worries, brother. It, it was a great conversation, and I I, I don't want to step in the way when when things got flowing because this this was such a good good hour to to look back and really dig in a little bit deeper than 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 just the surface on Andre the Giant. So a uh, great great time, and I do want to thank you, Mike, for coming back to the program. Your your work is always appreciated, my friend. Well, thank you. I enjoy being a part of the show each and every week, except when I'm on assignment. But I'm always doing something to get the show going 
and get more guests. So you can kind of say I'm always working on wrestling memories pretty much every day of the week. You are. You are always be closing kind of guy. For uh, the Grizzle Vet, Mike McCurdy, and our guest, Chris Owens, uh, who we enjoyed hearing uh, some great stories about the life of Andre the Giant, I'm Glenn Broggett. This has been Wrestling Memories Then and Now.